Hey, South Africa. Welcome to Farmers Inside Track Weekend. I'm your host, Dawn Numdu. Now, after the recent signing of the Agricultural Agro-Processing Master Plan, we want to impact some of the other master plans focused on the agricultural industry. So over the next few weeks, I'll be joined by various experts from different commodities to explain the sector master plans, specifically developed to help create conducive conditions for industries to grow in Mzanzi. We kick off with the South African Sugar Value Chain Master Plan for 2030, signed by the Minister of Agriculture, Land Reform and Rural Development, Tokodidiza, as well as Trade and Industry and Competition Minister, Ibrahim Batal, in November 2020. Joining us now is Judith Wilson, the South African Sugar Association's Commercial Director. Now, Judith, before we get into today's discussion, maybe just a little bit about yourself your journey in agriculture, and what you do at the South African Sugar Association. I started studying agriculture at university, at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, many, many, many years ago. My family often joke that I'm an overqualified horticulturalist because I have an MSc in that particular field. But I started working for Sappy Forests and moved up into their commercial business selling paper worked very briefly for a pharmaceutical company selling products to farmers, then was lucky enough to be brought on board at the South African Sugar Association, where we serve over 20,000 growers and six milling companies, um, and obviously the many, many people that are linked to those in this country. And I'd like to thank you for coming with all of that expert knowledge and experience and sharing a lot of what growers and what's happening in the lives of sugarcane growers in the country. And specifically, we're talking about the master plan for the South African sugarcane value chain. And this has obviously come about as a result of engagement with sugar industry stakeholders, their social partners, and particularly small and large cane growers, millers and refiners, retailers and industry users of sugar and sugar derived products, as well as government. Now, that was a lot said. Now, as a start, can we maybe outline Mzanzi sugar industry? currently concentrated in rural areas of Kosil Natal and southern Mpumalanga, what does the landscape look like in the country? So Dawn, it's an incredibly rural business. I think that that's probably one of the key reasons why we as the sugar industry and government are so focused on ensuring that it survives and thrives. Because as you said, it is situated mainly in KZN and southern Mpumalanga, but it is also in areas where very little else grows and where very little other economic activity takes place in many cases. So the industry consists of 20,631 small-scale growers and 1,099 large-scale growers, all of whom are growing sugarcane and all of whom are involved in a process that's covered by the Sugar Act, where the price that they are paid for cane by millers is set and is set by law which means that a small-scale grower can thrive in this environment provided that they're given the support that they require in terms of their economies of scale because they're not having to negotiate the price for their primary product. And I think this is a particularly key point in terms of um, sugarcane growing in South Africa. It's a crop where the price is set regardless of whether you deliver one ton or 100,000 tons. And that's really important to us. We have, in terms of the milling capacity, we have six milling companies They are Ilovo Sugar, Tongot Hewlett, RCL Foods. Then we have some of the smaller ones, Gledar Sugar Milling Company, UCL Limited, and Amphalosi Sugar Milling Company. 
And they are situated all in KZN and Mpumalanga to receive the cane that's grown in those areas and to mill it into usable product, which in our case is mainly sugar. So it's produced into brown and white sugar for the local market, as well as molasses. And then we have raw sugar and some refined sugar that is exported outside of the country that is sold by SASA, by the South African Sugar Association, onto the export market. Thank you so much for giving us that overview. Now, back to the discussion I mentioned specifically around the South African Sugar Value Chain Master Plan. What is the aim of this plan? There's a big, long, fancy title that's used for the Sugarcane Value Chain Master Plan to 2030, which talks about creating a diversified, globally competitive, sustainable and transformed industry based on sugarcane. And I think that that is the objective, most certainly the objective. But I think that in the initial phase of the master plan, really what we were all looking to do is to take an industry that had gone into technically ICU out of ICU, stabilize it and get it into the general ward. I think we were at a stage where because of various external happenings that had taken place, some of these were drought, others were the introduction of the health promotions levy on sugar-sweetened beverages that had knocked the industry really badly. We'd really got to a point where with deep sea imports and all sorts plaguing us, we were no longer going to be able to sustain the kind of size and the number of jobs and the number of livelihoods that we do. And just for interest, in terms of the number of people that are employed by the sugar industry, the estimate is 65,000. That's direct employment. When it comes to indirect employment, it's 270,000. And we estimate that on that basis, over a million lives in South Africa are dependent on the sugar industry. And I think that's really where the big focus came was how can we save this industry, stabilize it, and then put it in a position to grow and thrive and diversify and be a very leading part of agricultural transformation going into the future. And that's actually some of the aspects that I would like to cover later in this episode, specifically around, you know, sustaining the jobs and livelihoods of many of the rural communities that really live off the land and live by growing sugarcane. But before we get there, maybe you can just highlight some of the key role players involved in developing this master plan for the South African sugar value chain. I think I may have mentioned some of them in my introductions as well. As a South African sugar industry in 2018, 2019, we're really getting to the point where we needed coordinated government assistance. And we wrote to the minister of the DTIC, indicating the sort of size of the industry, the size of the problem and the support that was needed. And very fortunately, at round about the same time, President Ramaphosa had introduced the concept of sectoral master plans. And Minister Patel of the DTIC was certainly taking off in this time in terms of getting these master plans together and starting to show how you could bring governments as well as industry together sort of under a tent and get everyone to work together in a social compact to move the country forward. So our timing in terms of that was very good. Minister Patel and Minister Ladiza are the sponsors of our master plan, and they've done an incredible amount of work to really try and draw a huge number of stakeholders into the master plan. I think what's always so interesting with these master plans is it's not as if everybody within a master plan would naturally be allies. In many cases, you know, our interests are diametrically opposed. But into the master plan, they've drawn, obviously, the sugar industry. So they've drawn the associations linked to the industry. So that would be the South African Sugar Association, who I represent, as well as the South African Sugar Milling and Refining Association the South African Farmers Development Association, 
and the South African Cane Growers Association are all sort of members of SASA and equally members of the master plan. They then brought in various arms of government as were required, and that's obviously something that's ongoing. They also invited Labour to join the master plan and then got commitment from the likes of MassMart, Tiger Brands, Coca-Cola, Pioneer Foods, ShopRite Checkers, Pick and Pay, Spa, Woolworths, as well as some of the associations that represent more of the downstream stakeholders, such as the Consumer Goods Council of South Africa and the Beverage Association of South Africa. So they made an incredible effort to bring as many people who had an influence on the value chain as possible into the tent. And through bilateral discussions with us, they crafted a master plan document, which is basically a set of commitments. And so it's very much a case of you bring something to the table and for bringing that to the table, there's something that you need that you get back. Minister Patel always speaks about our master plan as the bring and bry. So if you want to come to the bry, you need to bring something. And I'll give you a very simple example. One of the things that was requested by the downstream stakeholders, the likes of the ShopRite Checkers and Coke, et cetera, is that they really wanted to buy more South African sugar, but they needed some certainty in terms of price stability. And so for that, the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition then negotiated with the sugar industry to say, can you keep your prices stable at CPI on average over the next three years? We agreed to that. And on that basis, then the downstream stakeholders committed to greater volumes of local sugar purchasing. And all of this is incredibly important because for the sugar industry to survive, we needed to sell more sugar in the local market. The minute we sell sugar outside of the South African Customs Union, we lose money in a big way. The world market of sugar is a dumped market. Any sugar that's sold on the export market by any sugar producing country in the world is sold at a loss. And so we want to avoid that market as much as possible. That's one of the examples of a commitment that was made that sort of benefits both parties or all parties, but helps everyone move forward in terms of bringing the industry to some type of stability. And you've actually answered my next question. And I think you alluded to the fact earlier that, you know, the industry was in ICU and you needed to get it out of it. I mean, this plan is described as a lifeline for sugarcane growers with local sugar users, like you said, committing to sourcing. And please correct me if I'm wrong, at least 80% of all sugar from local farms and millers for a period of three years, like you just mentioned. And this started in 2021. You just said that it is underway. How has this really changed the game for Mzanzi sugarcane growers? Well, it's been incredibly important. It's a commitment that was really foundational and fundamental to the success of the master plan. It needed to be one of the early wins. I think that's what's so critical with master plans is that they're social compacts. So everybody is operating on their honor and you need to make sure that people are feeling the value of a master plan in order for them to stay committed to it. The challenge to the downstream users of sugar was to attempt to purchase 80% of their sugar needs from South African sugar producers in the first year of the master plan. By the third year, which is this year and that started in April 2022, they should increasing that volume to 95% of their purchases that they made of all sugar should be from South African sources. I think within SACU, it's also important to remember that Eswatini is a big producer of sugar. They do send a huge proportion of their sugar into South Africa. And obviously, because it's a free trade area, they are very free to do so. And so taking all of those things into account, asking the local buyers of sugar to commit more to South African sugar was really important. 
In the first year, we were very successful. The target for the first year was that we should see an increase of 150,000 tons in terms of local sales. And we saw nearly 180,000 tons of increase, which was fantastic. We were so pleased. And I think everyone felt very positive around the trajectory of the master plan on that basis. What we did find in the second year, which completed in March 2022, is that there hadn't been much progress past that point. That's something that's being discussed within the master plan. The stakeholders are engaging on that to understand what the challenges to that may be. We know that last year there were several factors that influenced both the sugar industry as well as downstream stakeholders. One example of that would be the civil unrest in KZN in July that had a major impact on supply chains and all sorts of other things. So those are the kind of things that are in discussion now to understand if we can get back on track and move in the third year, which is the plan, to an additional 300,000 tons of sugar. So we're looking to move from the first year, we achieved 180,000 tons additional sales and to 300,000 tons additional sales this year. We're obviously all very hopeful that that can happen, but working together practically to make sure that we get as close to that target as possible. I think I want to just send some positive energy that it actually does happen, because as you know, things are unpredictable. The unrest was not predicted at all. So there are so many, you know, variables when it comes to working in the agricultural space. I'm with you on that. And I do hope that you'll reach your targets, Judith. According to Minister Tokodidiza, the sugar industry is also a critical employer of workers and a source of livelihood for many um, rural communities. And you've also just alluded to that as well earlier in this episode. Now, can you maybe highlight the aspects of the master plan set to sustain these jobs and rural livelihoods and agribusinesses? It's a very important part of the master plan. I think that there's a strong recognition of the fact that sugarcane growing and cultivation by its very nature actually calls on a lot of labor. It's a labor-intensive crop, particularly the way we grow it in South Africa. What I mean by that is that in other countries, sugarcane is largely mechanized. So, for example, in some of the big sugarcane producing countries like Brazil, they have large flat areas of land. They use very little labor. The majority of their harvesting and planting operations would be done mechanically. South Africa is very different. We have an imperative to employ. And I think that to a large extent, the sugar industry has guarded against mechanization because of understanding where we operate. We operate in such rural areas that to lose jobs in favor of mechanization, even though that may be more efficient in some cases, would just really be against what we as South Africans are trying to do. I think that also it's important that in KZN, the topography of the land that sugarcane is planted on doesn't really lend it to extensive mechanization. So there's some that's possible, but certainly we are very reliant on labor. And as part of this master plan, some of the things that are being considered are, are we producing too much sugar? So the fact that we have to export quite a large proportion of our sugar at a loss, how can we avoid doing that? And one of the natural obvious ways would be to say, okay, we'll grow less sugarcane and produce less sugar, and then you won't be selling on the export market. But unfortunately, the job losses and the impact on the economy would be enormous from doing that. So one of the strategies and commitments of the master plan is that we need to protect jobs. So we need to focus on job retention and mitigation. And that has forced us and very happily forced us to look at how we can take sugarcane and rather than reduce the growing of it, look at ways that we can diversify either the land that it's grown on or the cane itself into other products. There's a lot of work that's being done in the master plan looking at alternative crops to sugarcane. There are some opportunities and some cane farmers where they have sort of access to finance 
have already started to diversify over many years. They've started to diversify into other products such as macadamias. However, for many farmers, this isn't possible. And so what we are also looking at is what products could be made using sugarcane that may divert it away from loss-making export sugar and into something that's more profitable and more sustainable. So we're looking at other areas. Biofuels are an opportunity that requires an enormous amount of policy coordination in terms of increasing the volume of biologically produced fuel that would be in the fuel pool in South Africa. There are also other opportunities such as aviation fuel, bioplastics that are possible. I think the key thing with the master plan is that for many years, the South African sugar industry members have been under financial strain. So it would be very difficult for them immediately to reinvest in massive diversification plants or projects until they're in a position where they're stable, just wouldn't be able to get the money essentially to make those investments. So that's the big focus of the master plan is to get everyone stable and start planning for a redesigned future. Hopefully over these, this period of time with local market sales increasing and the members of the industry becoming more stable, they'll be in a better position to invest in diversification. Diversification also offers an enormous opportunity for transformation because as new plants are developed that can produce new products, so you can ensure that the ownership of those plants is more reflective of what it should be in terms of South Africa, that black representation, black industrialization is promoted and supported by the industry's diversification. It does feel like a bit of a rebirth, uh, Judith, the way you're describing it. I'm enjoying just listening to, you know, what the plans are and where it would be going within the next few years. Now, the master plan was set up, you know, as a phased approach and, you know, very focused on sustaining the sugar industry. And I think you've really kind of given us a clear roadmap to where it's going. But can you maybe describe some of the timelines? And I think you've over and above highlighted the progress that, that you've made to date. But what happens over the next few years until we get to 2030? So essentially, because we all obviously were involved in the crafting of the master plan document, and really phase one was mapped out. And phase one was to take three years. Those three years would expire in March 2023. So we're very close to the end of the first phase of the master plan. And its intentions really were to settle the industry, stabilize it, and plan for the future. I think if I were to summarize what phase one was intended to do, It was basically to get the patient off oxygen and start planning for what we would do in terms of the future of the industry. And in some cases, we've made good progress. There are other places where a lot more um, stakeholder engagement, discussion, collaboration, and policy alignment is going to be needed. I think what we see with these master plans is that it's not a straight road. As you said earlier, the civil unrest could not have been foreseen. In fact, neither could COVID which had a massive impact on this master plan, because obviously from almost the start, we weren't able to meet as stakeholders as we had envisaged we would. We were meeting on Zoom and signing master plans on Zoom instead of in person. There were many things that had to sort of take a back seat because we were focusing on the priority of COVID and the challenges that we were facing because of it. But I think that the sort of the initial stage, the phase one was around planning and stabilizing. And the next phase is around implementation. And that phase, I think, is going to be informed by phase one. So I think that going into phase two, there would be sort of timelines set based on the decisions that are made. So for example, if you were to put up a biofuels plant, there'd be time for capital investment and development of that plant. 
And then there'd be time for sort of implementation and actually starting to produce that product and reaping the rewards of the investment. And that, I think, is part of what we are trying to do now in phase one, is look at what do we want to do and what will the timing of phase two really look like. Thanks so much for joining us, Judith Wilson, South African Sugar Association's Commercial Director. Now that brings us to the end of another exciting episode of Farmers Inside Track Weekend. If you loved this podcast, please rate it and share it with your friends, family members and fellow farmers. From Ido Numdu, our producer Megan van der Fent, and the rest of the Food Form Zanzi team, have an awesome weekend. Bye for now. Life in South Africa can be a lot. I mean, scroll through Twitter for a minute and tell me I'm wrong. Thank God for South Africans though, right? We're inspiring and even on the bad days, we fight back with a smile. That's why I love Food Form Zanzi so much. They're not ashamed to celebrate the ordinary unsung heroes who work every day to put food on our nation's tables. Go to foodformzanzi.co.za and never miss an inspiring story.